0: Well, hello. My name is Brian Walsh, and I'm excited to bring you the third class in our series on Jeremiah. Um, If you haven't had the chance yet, I'd encourage you to go back and to watch the first class and the second class. Both of those, uh, like this video, are available at godsredeemed.org. So if you haven't seen those two videos or if somebody shared this with you and you want to see some of the other videos that we have, go to godsredeemed.org. And then look on the left-hand side there and go under the sermons option. Uh, We've got a lot of uh, videos right now. We've got sermons that are uploaded there that can help edify and encourage you. But uh, I'm excited tonight to bring you this this third class. Uh, Two weeks ago, we did an introduction. We covered chapter one. And then last week, Matt did a great job uh, bringing us from chapters two all the way through chapter six. And tonight, we're going to start in on chapter seven of Jeremiah. But let me, uh, let me set the scene, maybe do a little bit of a, a recap with you. If you think about where we are, we talked in that first class about the geopolitical uh, setting of what was going on. Uh, you think about where Judah is. Israel has already been taken captive by Syria, And to the north, there's Babylon. Babylon is this growing world power. Uh, one of the things that was unique about Babylon is that they formed these alliances. So they formed alliances with the Chaldeans, with the Medes, with the Persians, and they were really growing into a world power at this time, uh, in fact, taking over for Assyria. And then to the south of Judah, you still had Egypt, which was a formidable power in its own right. Um, And and so you had these two players on the world stage with Judah right in between. Uh, We talked a little bit about the kings of this time, Uh, the, the king during the beginning of the book of Jeremiah is King Josiah. And if you remember King Josiah, he took the throne when he was eight years old. He reigned for 31 years. Jeremiah actually picks up in the 13th year of that reign, but King Josiah was a good king. He put through a lot of incredible reforms. Um, he cleaned out the temple. He took down the high places. They found the book of the law. Uh, a lot of good things were happening there was good strong leadership at the top but unfortunately not all the people repented and that was the role that Jeremiah was called to fill to, to call these people to repentance so you had those 31 years of Josiah and then over the next about 22 years you had four kings two of the kings only lasted for about three months the two other kings lasted for 11 years each but four kings in rather rapid succession as Babylon was pushing nearer and nearer and nearer and then ultimately destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So that's that, that's the background. That's the context to what's going on. Um, when we get to chapter 7, as I mentioned, this is during the time of Josiah. And if you were to go back to Second Chronicles chapter 34, Second Chronicles 34 kind of lays out the, the timeline of what was going on. Um, it says that he was eight when he took the throne. Eight years into his reign, he began to seek God. Twelve years into that reign, he began to purge the land. And 18 years in, they find the book of the law. So if Jeremiah starts in the 13th year, we are literally right in the middle of these sweeping reforms that are going throughout the nation. And I say that because the chapters that we're going to look at tonight, Jeremiah chapter 7 through 10, are an address by Jeremiah at the temple. So he is talking to individuals that are coming to the temple to worship. But what's so sad is that he is pointing out that despite coming to the temple to worship God, they still have sin in their lives. They're still worshiping idols, they haven't left those behind. So you see these two things going on at the same time. Josiah at the top has begun to to purge the land and he's begun to make these sweeping reforms and you would hope that the the nation itself is turning. But I think if you remember from Matt's class last week, we see that that's not the case, certainly not throughout the entirety of the land of Judah. Uh, It reminded me of Jeremiah chapter three. Jeremiah chapter three and in verse 10 it says, and yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. That's, that's the underlying situation that's going on, and that's why it's so necessary for Jeremiah to come and to preach this address. Uh, there should be some slides that are uh, posted up here, and uh, I've tried to just point out three takeaways from each chapter. So we're going to be covering chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 tonight. A lot of material there. Uh, We're not gonna go verse by verse, but the aim of these videos is to give you a resource as you are doing your own study at home, as you're reading through these chapters, to kind of point out some of the key things. Um, And I've tried to put some of those on the slides as well, so you can use those for reference as we go throughout our study. Uh, But let's go ahead and jump into Jeremiah chapter seven. If you start there, just in the first couple of verses, Uh, We see the setting in Jeremiah chapter seven and verse two, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways. So right from the start, getting directly at it, repentance is necessary. What you are doing is not acceptable. And again, we're talking to individuals that are coming to the temple to worship. This is the temple that probably just a few years prior had been purged, had been cleaned from all the idols that were inside of it. But yet what we're going to find out is maybe the idols have been removed from the temple, but the idols have not been removed from the people's hearts and from their lives. And what you see here is that they are actually relying on the temple. They feel safe. They feel secure. Uh, When you look in verse 4, it says, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. You you get the idea. They almost felt that as long as the temple was standing, God was on their side. Who could harm them? It doesn't matter that Israel was taken away uh, by the Assyrians. It doesn't matter that uh, Babylon is growing in power. We've got the temple. As long as the temple's here, we're going to be fine. Well, as we read throughout chapter seven, the Lord through Jeremiah goes to great lengths to remind them that is not the case. The temple is not some sort of special uh, talisman. It's not some sort of good luck charm that as long as it's standing, you're gonna be fine. Far from it. And he actually reminds them that's not the case by going back to a prior example in Shiloh. We'll look at that in just a second. But after he tells them not to rely on the temple, He goes through and tells them what they need to do, what they need to correct, why they need to amend their ways. If you look in the next couple of verses, uh, look at verse six, for example, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, do not shed innocent blood, walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. But behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit, verse eight. That is their real standing. That is their real situation. Um, Go down to verse 12. This is what I mentioned just a minute ago. He says, go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Now, if you remember Shiloh, Shiloh was the place of the original tabernacle. Uh, When they first came into the land uh, with Joshua and the people, the tabernacle was there and the Ark of the Covenant was there. And so if you were to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, you can read there about a battle between the children of Israel and the Philistines. And they engage with the Philistines uh, without consulting God, and they lose. And they come back and they regroup and they say, what's going on? And they realize, oh, we didn't have the ark with us. That's what it must be. We have to have the ark. If we have the ark, we're untouchable. Not if we have God on our side. If we have the Ark, again, they were treating it like a talisman, some kind of good luck charm, that they could just have this physical object with them, and then regardless of their behavior, all would go well. And that wasn't the case. If you remember, thousands were slaughtered when they take the Ark and they go back into battle. Thousands were slaughtered, and the Ark was actually taken by the Philistines. This was during the time uh, when Eli was the judge. Remember that young man runs back, um, and tells Eli that his sons have died and the ark has been taken and Eli himself falls over dead. Uh, A sad, sad time in the land of Israel, but going back to uh, the root cause there. They thought the ark was some kind of special charm, and they didn't realize that what was the most important thing was their relationship with God, not some sort of physical object. And he's bringing that example here to them, speaking about the temple. It's the same thing. Just because you have the temple, maybe you've cleaned it up. Maybe you've taken the idols out of the temple. You have to do more. You have to completely remove the idols from your life. Don't just clean up the physical place, the temple. Clean up your physical lives by amending your ways, changing your ways, repent of the things that you're doing and come back into a right relationship with God. This is maybe magnified when you go on into verses 16 and following when you see that one of the sins that, that has always been, and, and you know God, God doesn't rank sins by any means, but maybe the one sin that he cautions the people on more than others is the sin of idolatry. And we see that idolatry has clearly taken hold throughout the people at this time. Uh, He mentions in uh, verse 18, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. So idolatry was still a part of their lives. and, And maybe what is most concerning is that the children are even involved in this. This is not just the parents that have fallen away and taken part of this. They've made it a family activity. So that mom and dad and the kids are all taking part. And what's most concerning there is that now you're just passing it on from one generation to another. So instead of the commandment to teach your children to follow the Lord God, to love the Lord God, they are actually doing the opposite. They are teaching their children to worship this queen of heaven, uh, whether that's an asterisk or, or whatever it may be. The point is, it's somebody besides God. It's an idol besides God, and that's unacceptable. And again, we're talking to people that are coming to the temple, but yet this is a part of their life on the other days. And he's calling out their hypocrisy and letting them know this is, this is unacceptable. God is not going to accept your temple worship. God is not going to accept you when idolatry is part of your life. When you go down to the next couple of verses, he really makes this clear, verses 21 through verse 26. And he says, verse twenty two, I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices, but this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. He's saying that's the important thing. Again, go go back to go back to those familiar passages in Samuel when the Lord is talking to Saul. He says, I did not want sacrifice, I want obedience. I want obedient hearts. Yes, sacrifice is part of the old law, but those sacrifices come from obedient hearts. Just Just a sacrifice when the heart's not in it is nothing. And that's the same for us today when we think about our worship, how our worship must have both components. It must be in spirit and it must be in truth. If we have one without the other, it's going to be unacceptable to God. If maybe we're following things to the letter, but our heart is not in it, it's going to be unacceptable worship. On the flip side, if we have all the zeal and all the passion in the world, but yet we're not worshiping and obeying God the way that he would have us to, that that passion and that zeal is is, is misdirected. And again, it's not going to be acceptable to God. And, And he brings this out clearly to them. And he says in verse 25, since the day they came out of the land of Egypt, I sent the prophets to correct them. He says, rising up early and sending them, yet they did not obey me or incline their ear. And that's the task that sadly awaits Jeremiah. He is another one in those long line of prophets that God has continually sent to his people to remind them. I want you to obey me. I want to instruct you. And this is, this is, the, this is where they find themselves. As you close out the chapter, verses 27 through 34, it's hard to go by without mentioning that their sinful acts culminate in maybe what is one of the most despicable forms of idol worship, and that's mentioned there in verse 31, and that is the the sacrifice and the slaughter of innocent children. Uh, verse 31, they built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. That was one of the sins that was specifically called out by Manasseh. If you remember, we talked about that would have been uh, Josiah's grandfather, Um, one one of the most wicked kings for a long period of time before he repented to the end of his life. But the the specific sin of sacrificing and slaughtering children is just, uh, honestly, it's hard to fathom. It's hard to fathom how you could have individuals, again, we're talking about people that are coming to the temple, they're coming to the temple to worship God, but yet the sacrificial offering of children is a part of their life. It's hard to reconcile those two things, and, and, and it would be hard to go by this verse without uh, commenting on the world that we live in today. It, it, is, it is hard to fathom how uh, abortion can, can even be a thought in, in the minds of individuals today. Uh, while, while not a sacrifice to an idol, the slaughter of an innocent child for what T- to end to end this life, so that so that somebody so that somebody wouldn't have the burden of raising that child. It's just it's it's hard to fathom, and I think the point that we can make here is that it's completely incompatible with God's word. It's completely incompatible with the way that God would have us to live our life. He even says there. At the end of verse 31, these are things that I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. It's incompatible with God's heart to sacrifice and to slaughter young children, um, and, and and yet that gives you an idea of where this people was. Uh, this was their state at the time that Jeremiah is prophesying to them. When you go on in, let's let's move into uh, let's move into chapter eight. Chapter 8, the first couple of verses there talk about the judgment that's going to come, and judgment should come. When you think about all the things we've just discussed, uh, a nation of people that still has idolatry so tightly uh, intertwined into their lives, a nation of people that's sacrificing their children, judgment needs to come upon them. And it's going to happen. Um, When you look at these first couple of verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, the city is going to be ravaged to the point that the graves are going to be desecrated. Uh, it mentions in verse 3 death shall be chosen rather than life by the remnant. That's uh, a scary thing to imagine that things are going to be so bad that even the ones that escape are going to wish that they had died. What we see in the following verses, though, it is, it is uh, you know, it's not, it's not humorous, but it's interesting to see that, that God uses this analogy to essentially look at, at animals. And compare how animals will actually follow the path that God has laid out for them better than God's own people. Uh, he mentions, let's see, let's look in, let's look in verse 6. I listened and heard, but they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course. As the horse rushes into the battle, even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times. And the turtle dove, the swift, the swallow, observe the time of their coming, but my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. God pointing out this contrast between some of the most basic creatures of his creation, they know their place, they know their path, they know what God has designed for them. But yet, God's people don't. God's people don't understand the judgment Of the Lord, and as he goes on in the the next couple of verses, uh, you can go down verses seven, really on down through about verse sixteen. This deceit and this wickedness is only going to lead to judgment. Again, this is kind of tying in with those first couple of verses of the chapter. But uh, he he says there, um, you know, look at the scribe. You look at the uh, it mentions there the prophet. In verse 10, that deals falsely. They're saying peace when there is no peace. All these individuals, all these individuals that should have been leading the people, that should have understood God's judgment and followed God's direction, they weren't. They were following after their own course. And the end result was only going to be judgment. When we come down to verse uh, verse 18, chapter 8, there in verse 18, we see that the end result is is really is really this sorrow, this mourning on behalf of the prophet. He is he is not unmoved by the tragedy that he prophesies, and, and really it reminded me uh, of Christ of Christ in Matthew chapter twenty three, as he looked out and knowing the suffering that was going to come among his people, he he was not he was not unmoved. Um, he he was not he was not unsympathetic to their situation, and Jeremiah is in the same uh, the same boat here. Uh, verse eighteen of chapter eight: I would comfort myself in sorrow; my heart is faint in me. Um, he goes down, verse twenty one: The hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt; I am mourning. And he asks this question, verse twenty two: Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no relief? Is there no ointment that can be put on that can ease the pain that I'm feeling right now? And this thought carries right on into uh, chapter 9, the first couple of verses. Uh, Read with me verse 1. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He wishes that his eyes were a fountain so that he could cry more. Uh, that, that just describes the deep sorrow and despair. So he, he's, not, he's not prophesying, saying, listen, you're going to get what you deserve and it's coming for you. There's an understanding of, of God's righteous judgment needs to be executed. But also he takes no pleasure in it. He takes no pleasure in bringing this message to the people. Again, he's standing at the temple talking to these people. And he's telling them, listen, I am, I'm weeping. I wish that my eyes were a fountain so that I could cry continually. Number one, that should show some, some sympathy that he has for the people, that he cares deeply, he loves his brethren. But also, I think it should reinforce just the severity of the punishment and destruction that is coming, that he is going to weep without ceasing. That should really impress upon them that what's coming is not good. Uh, what's coming is not desirable at all. And, and the reason for the sorrow is clear. The people are wicked. If you look in chapter 9, I think it sums it up pretty well in verse 6. Chapter 9 and verse 6, your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. You know, your dwelling place is deceit. You live in deceit. It is literally surrounding you. You are abiding in deceit. You've tricked yourself, and instead of following me, God says, you're following yourself. You've essentially, you've lied to yourself, and you've believed that lie for so long. This deceit and this wickedness are only going to lead to judgment by God. Again, a common theme uh, that was really started in our study last week with Matt, carried on through um, verses 7, really down through about verse 16. Uh, he, he talks about what is coming. Uh, verse 11 maybe summarizes it well. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. It's going to, it, it, it's, just, it's just sad to think about this. But again, it's all because of their choices. Uh, verse 14, he mentions there, they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals. This, this judgment is not coming out of nowhere. Again, remember, we're talking about plenty of lead time before this happens. Um, these, these first 20 chapters are taking place during the reign of Josiah. Josiah reigned 31 years. We started in verse 13. And then you still had, or we started in year 13, rather. So, uh, so we have that period of time, plus we've got another 22 years of those other four kings. So th- this judgment is coming, but it's not going to be a surprise. They have plenty of time to amend their ways. And Jeremiah is very plain with them about exactly what they need to change. The next section gives us a little bit of a different picture, but again, saying the same thing, talking about this judgment that is coming. Uh, Verse 17, there is this call that goes out for mourning women, women to come and to mourn. And you get the idea that after the the battle, when all the men have gone out to fight, the only thing that's gonna be left are these women, and they're going to be mourning all the lives that are lost, all of the men, all all of the individuals that have been slaughtered. And it mentions verse 19, a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered, we are greatly ashamed, we have forsaken the land, we've been cast out of our dwellings. That's the picture that is presented here. Verse 22, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field like the cuttings of the harvester, and no one will gather them up. Just a truly devastating and gruesome picture. That's the destruction that is that is awaiting them. Just as the, the people realize here that the temple would not save them, that's how we kind of started. They also need to realize that these other things that they cling to are not going to save them. And the last couple of verses here in chapter 9 bring that out. Um, Verse 23, it says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. It's just a reminder to them that he, he's mentioned time and time again that they've gone after their own way. They have left the instructions of the Lord. They've left the commandments of the Lord. They've gone after idols. They've chosen their own path. And, and again, they thought they were wise. They thought they were mighty. They thought they were rich. They thought they were safe and secure. But the one thing they need is the one thing they've omitted, and that's God. Because God is the one, as it mentions there in verse 24, he is the one that exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. And he expects his people to do the same. And that's what they lack. And if they're going to amend their ways, if they're going to repent and come back, this is the character they need to take on, an obedient heart. And he ends this chapter by saying that punishment is coming. And punishment is not just coming for them. Um, This message is brought out, and we'll deal with it a little bit later in Jeremiah, but punishment is coming for for all the nations that don't acknowledge God as the one true Lord. His people will be punished for for their unfaithfulness, but uh, he mentions in verse 26, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the people of Ammon, Moab, and all who are in the farthest corners who dwell in the wilderness. All these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. And they're all going to be punished. They're all going to come to know that there is one God. There is one God. And that that idea of just one God and one God alone is is really focused on in chapter 10. Uh, Chapter 10 does a great job of pointing out the futility of of idols. Uh, It kind of reminds me a little bit of some of those chapters in Isaiah. Uh, Maybe Isaiah 40, 41, um, maybe even Isaiah chapter 45. Uh, It really just points out that futility of worshiping something that you have made with your own hands. Um, This actually takes it a step further in the first couple of verses and just kind of points out how silly is it to be afraid of something that you have made with your own hands. Um, Read with me in verse 3. The customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workman with the axe, they decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so they will not topple over. You, you almost see a little bit of humor there that you've got this all-powerful all God represented in an idol, but we have to make sure it doesn't fall over. Um, they are upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they can't go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. point is they can't do anything. It's something you just made. And he points out that just the futility of, of worshiping something like that and then the futility of being afraid or, or wanting to please or being scared that you're not doing enough to please some inanimate object that you made. You took the axe, you cut it down, you shaped it, you put the nails in it, you put the little supports on it so that it wouldn't fall over, and that's the thing that you're worshiping? something that can't talk something that you have to carry everywhere you go it, it's 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 a little bit funny for us to sit here and and think about that because we don't have those physical idols but yet it's it's just as silly to think about the things that we hold up as idols today the things that we worship that we give our time to that when you really back up and look at it n- nothing compares to God. In the scope and the context of eternity, nothing compares, but yet each and every day we give our time, we give our money, we give our efforts to idols in our own life. Idols that we have propped up that in, in in all reality are just as silly as if we had taken a piece of wood and adorned it with gold and silver and nails and whatever to make sure it didn't fall over. So we can't get we can't get caught up. In thinking that just because we don't have that little wooden figurine in a closet somewhere, that we don't have idols in our life, uh, we, we can we can fall prey to that same thing. But, and this is a good reminder. This is a good reminder that when you compare something like that, there, there is no comparison. There's absolutely none comparison. Verse, verse 6, inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you if you're going to be afraid of something? This is what we need to be afraid of. Verse seven, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? This is your rightful due. Verse eight, a wooden idol is a worthless doctrine. Silver beaten into plates, brought from these different places, the work of craftsmen. But verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble. And the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. So if you're going to be afraid of something, if you're going to be afraid of not pleasing something, it needs to be the king of all the earth. It needs to be the God of creation because he is the one that the earth will tremble at his wrath. And verse 11 through 16 go on to point out these idols didn't create the world. God is the one that creates the world. Verse 16, he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Again, just no comparison whatsoever between these idols, these Baals, these asterisks, these queens of heaven, whatever they're called, and the one true God. I love that phrase there, the maker of all things, the Lord of hosts. It's just incomparable when you think about trying to take that power, that might, that majesty and stack it up beside some small wooden idol. but Yet that's where they were. And that's what God is calling them to repentance over. Verses 17 through 22 again present us with a different picture of the destruction that's going to come. And this is really one of abandonment. Uh, if you look at these verses, uh, maybe read with me in verse 20. I think verse 20 kind of presents a good picture there. My tent is plundered and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me. They are no more. There is no one to pitch my tent anymore or set up my curtains. I, I get the picture there of uh, a family that is, has that is hastily had to, had to leave. I think I might actually mention that. Yeah, verse 17, gather up your wares from the land. So the, these inhabitants that have left in such a hurry that the tent that they lived in has just fallen down and collapsed and there's nobody there to pick it back up. Something as simple as pitching the tent back up, drawing the curtains back, pulling the supporting cords, there's nobody there. They, they left in such a hurry, and again, you think about the, the kind of person that would live in a tent, a nomadic individual who is used to moving around, left in such a hurry, they just left the tent there on the ground, and there's nobody even there to pitch it back up again. That's the abandonment that is going to accompany the destruction that is coming for Judah. Verse 22, Behold, the noise of the report has come, a great commotion out of the north country, talked about this before, Babylon coming from the north, to make the cities of Judah desolate and a den of jackals. Uh, We've seen some of those terms repeated, and again, Jeremiah at the temple trying to drive home his point. Destruction, punishment, judgment, Death, desolation, all these things are coming for you. You have to amend your ways. you have to repent. And he tells them exactly what they need to do in these last couple of verses. He says, "O oh Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. So instead of man deciding what he wants to worship, instead of man deciding that he wants to worship an idol, Instead of man determining how he thinks he can be pleasing to whatever God he chooses, that's not the way. It is not within man to direct his steps. Man goes to God for direction. The direction is only found in the one that we described earlier as the maker of all things. 24, O Lord, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. We need correction. We need those prophets sent to us, rising early in the morning to give us God's word so that we can be corrected, so that we can know how to be pleasing and acceptable unto God. And last of all, we need mercy. And that's what Jeremiah asked for in verse 25. So we conclude our study tonight. Pour out your fury on the Gentiles who do not know you and on the families who do not call on your name, for they have eaten up Jacob, devoured him and consumed him and made his dwelling place desolate. So you think about these last couple of verses We need humility to understand that our way is not within us. We need direction from God, and we also need to accept correction. We need to accept that instruction in righteousness. And when we hold ourselves up to that perfect standard, and if we find ourselves lacking, we need to change course. We need to correct, and then we need mercy. And we pray that God's judgment is poured out, not on us, but we ask for his grace And we ask for his mercy, and that's what the prophet is doing here. He knows that judgment is coming, but he's asking for mercy for the people that he cares about, for the brethren he cares about. I hope this class has been helpful to you. Uh, Next week, Matt will be back, Lord willing. He'll cover the next, next couple of chapters. See you then.